Radio in South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. That's right, The Long and Short of It Golf Podcast with myself, Dylan Rogers, Simon Hill, and Dale Hayes. And this episode brought to you by the Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate, the ultimate and secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. Located just three kilometers from Lanseria Airport in Johannesburg, Blair Athol has it all. World-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness center, spa and restaurant facilities. On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanseria Smart City. So why not visit BlairAthol.coza and take the first steps in creating your dream home. Come home to Blair Athol, an unparalleled living experience. Well, it's wonderful to welcome Tony Johnson to the long and the short of it. Tony, no stranger to golf lovers around the world and particularly here in South Africa. Tony, thanks for being on. And I start today with a message from John Bland, who I bumped into recently. And he oh, said yeah, to tell you that if your IQ were two points higher, you'd be a tree. <laughs> Well, I've progressed. The last time he said, if I had one more brain cell, I could become a carrot. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, it's, it's wonderful to have you on. Where do we find you at the moment? In the UK. Um, I did the commentary at Wentworth last week. I live just down the road and now I've got a week off. Uh, just sitting at home, basically sorting out paperwork and stuff. And then um, I'm off to France for the French Open next week. So I'm between tournaments. Yeah, I keep him quite busy. I've got a busy spell from now right through to the end of the, uh, the tournaments in South Africa, which I'm so looking forward to. Um, I hate to say this because he's on the podcast, but I can't wait to get out there and work with Hazel. Oh, you must be drunk. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. My missus brought me a Diet Coke. I think she added something to it. <laughs> well, you know, Simon, you know, of course, that, that Tony did in his late 40s suffer from multiple sclerosis. Yes. Tony, I mean, you know, maybe this is just like side effects. It could be an after effect. I think so. I'll, I'll get over it, though. I'll get over it before the end of the podcast. <laughs> but, Tony, just, just quickly back to the tournament at Wentworth. Interesting for a number of reasons, but just a very interesting time in the UK at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, with uh, the passing of uh, Her Majesty the Queen, it was, uh, you know, from our point of view, we were just told to stop talking or take a break or whatever. But for the powers that be, you know, we kept seeing the guys in the compound um, all the uh, the production managers, the producers, the guys from the tour, all having meetings about what the protocols would be. And then obviously, as soon as it was announced that um, the Queen had passed away, uh, everybody was pulled off the course. We had a day off. And there was talk at one point that the tournament might get knocked on the head completely. Um, and thankfully, that didn't happen because apparently Her Majesty said um, before she passed away that she didn't want sporting events to all come to a halt on her account, which I think, you know, is just... So typical of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, also an interesting tournament, Tony, because uh, coming at the same time as uh, all the discussion around the, the the live issue, if you can call it yeah. that, te- teed up by obviously comments by Roy McIlroy leading into it mm. and then you know backed up by the likes of your Billy Horschel. Give us a sense of the temperature there between the players and what you observe between the live players and the non-live players. You know what I think? Um I think guys generally are just cordial to each other. I, I didn't really hear of any serious aggro on the range, but uh, there, there's, there's definitely an undercurrent when you talk to uh, the loyal European tour players. They're 
you know, a lot of them are unhappy that the live guys have elected to to jump ship and go to live, which is fine. I don't think anybody's got an issue with that. You know, that's a, a choice, a financial choice. If you want to go off to live for the money, that's fine. But then don't start suing the tour to come back and play in cherry-picked events, when, especially when you've said you're going to live because you want to play less. You know, I think the feeling is, look, you guys have gone. We're all loyal to the European tour. We want to stay here and earn our living here. So stay away. Uh, there is definitely an element to that. And, you know, to be honest, I can't blame them. And three rounds and Sergio Garcia still couldn't make it. I know. Uh, to be honest, I think he's humiliating himself. I really do. Yeah. Um, you know, he's done a few things over the last few years that have been an embarrassment to him, certainly, and, and to the tour. But to do what he did, you know, to just up tools and go with no reason. You know, guys, there were, I think, five withdrawals, um, but all through genuine injuries. Ryan Fox popped something in his knee. The guys all have genuine injuries. But to just up tools head off to America and then start posting yourself on um, social media at a, at a football game, you know, with all the smiles and things. Personally, I think it's an absolute disgrace. And there's talk that he's going to get a fine. And, uh, you know, realistically, it should be a huge one. And this one won't get paid for by his bosses in, in Saudi Arabia either. He'll have to foot it mm. himself. Yeah. And, I mean, of course, apart from the fact that you just don't do that, it's who you're blocking as well from potentially getting a start I mean, there was the talk of Alfredo Garcia Heredia on the cusp of potentially securing his card for next year. Yeah. You know, what might have been. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he's a fellow Spaniard as well. Look, you know, people will say, look, he earned his spot, which, you know, is a, it's a valid argument. He's, you know, he's still up there in the world rankings and he's entitled to play at least until this court case is settled in February between um, the live guys that sued the, the, the DP World Tour. You know, he's not breaking any rules. He's yeah. not breaking any laws. He's entitled to play. But then pitch up and at least make a showing. You know, he shot 76 and couldn't be bothered to sit around until play resumed to find out what the story was going to be. And he got on a plane and left. And, um, you know, it's just uh, it's just not on, really, is it? I think it's, I think it's, I think it's sad for Sergio. You know, you know, five, six years ago, he was pretty popular in the world of golf. And to be honest, I don't think any golf fans can stand him at the moment. It's interesting because, you know, to walk off a golf course is a disgrace. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> anybody who actually walks off a golf course, you know, shouldn't be allowed back and play to play professional golf. Oh, here we go. Gloves are off. Here we go. You know what? I knew, I knew as soon as you brought up the question, Simon, that, that Hayes was going to, was going to intervene. And I, I suppose I should go ahead and tell the story now, should I? Please. Wanderers Golf Club years ago in the sort of mid-80s in the PGA Championship. And Wanderers was a course I just could not play because you have to hit a draw the whole way around, and I was a fader of the ball. And I used to struggle around that course like you cannot believe. So we get up in the first round on the uh, – in those days, it was the seventh hole. Uh, you know, dog leg up the hill. I don't know what – they've turned the course around or not and the next hole was the eighth which is the short par four but we used to play it as a par three so i blocked my tee shot right at the right hand trees at seven which i always did then i had a ricochet off the trees anyway long story short i've walked up with six and now i am seeding because i've just had a run of drop shots um and i look up and there's two at least two groups waiting on the par three tee and the seventh green is i mean it's 100 yards from the clubhouse and I've finally snapped. And I've said to my my uh, beloved caddy, Philip Latwaba, the late Philip Latwaba, who was a brilliant guy. I said, Philip, that's it. I'm done. I've had enough of this. 
my head's exploding. I'm going to, I've, I've got to get out of here. I've just got to get out of here. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm out of here. So I had my card to Gavin Levinson, who was scoring for me. I said, Gavin, I'm sorry, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. So I walk up the hill uh, into the car park, and we're busy putting the stuff in the car. And I look up, and um, Philip is crying, literally crying. There's tears running down his face. I said, geez, what's your problem? You didn't make a double drop. He says, no, boss. He says, you've never done this. This is not you. You would never do anything like this. And I looked at him, and I swear it broke my heart. I said, uh, well, Philip, you better get the Cubs back out the boot then, shouldn't you? So off we go back down the hill. We get there just in time to, to join up with the group. I said to Gavin, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. Anyway, uh, I was so motivated after all of this, I actually went on to win the tournament. Oh, my oh wow. <laughs> I went on to win the tournament. And um, oh. Hayes, when I told him the story, he said, well, you should have been disqualified. He said, you walked off the course, you should have been disqualified, which in retrospect might be right. I mean, it's, I don't like to say this, but Hayes might finally have been right about it. Uh, and, he, and he says he says that I should give back the miniature that I've got in my mantelpiece. Um, <laughs> so that was my one walk off, and it wasn't a success. <laughs> well, it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> Tony, can we can we can we not not wrap, but let's let, let's just unpack the, the live issue even further because there's yeah. no doubt, obviously, it's the hottest topic in golf at the moment. You've you've touched on it, but. You, Let's let's get your view on because you know for me it's a, it's a, it really is a multi-layered thing and that you, if you look at the different players getting involved in live golf and if you mention you know you, some of the inexperienced South African players who materially changed their lives overnight by playing in one live tournament financially, um, then you've got your Dustin Johnsons who've got I don't know eighty to hundred million dollars in the bank anyway and you know my mm-hmm. argument would be they don't need the money they claim they want to play less. Um, it, yeah. it, it really is you've got to look at it from in my view seventeen different. Mm-hmm you know, directions because everyone has different reasons for going. And some of those reasons, I would argue, are stronger than some, than some out there. A hundred percent, I would agree with you. When you call it multi-layered, you know, a guy like Richard Bland, 49 years of age, he had his first win last year. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's probably never going to have another one. It was his second, uh, his first win ever. You know, his, his playing days, his com- days of competing are over. So he's got the choice of going to the... Uh, the seniors to the legends tour in Europe or go and join live. I mean, a lot of guys, the guys like Westwood, Poulter, these guys, they passed their best, although Lee Westwood competed nicely last week again. They passed their best and, you know, they'd be stupid not to go. Somebody's offering you between 10 and 50 million. You know, off you go. Cheery on and yeah. enjoy it. A guy like Dustin Johnson, I agree wholeheartedly, and a, a guy like Mickelson, to me, that's just a lack of loyalty. You know, Mickelson's earned 100 million. He's got a 200 million pension to come from the PGA Tour. These guys became seriously wealthy, wealthy because of the PGA Tour. How much money does a man need, and how much is your loyalty worth? Cam Smith is another one. I, I don't, get, I can't get my head around it. Yeah. You know, they asked him if he won the um, FedEx Cup. You know what? You know what would the extra 18 million? He said, Well, you know, I've got enough money. What would I do the extra? I can't spend it. Million? Yeah. Can't spend it. I'd go and buy extra fishing equipment. Now here's a guy who's carried the President's Cup towel and yardage book since the open. He's sworn blind that his greatest goal in the last three years is to make the President's Cup. And lo and behold, off he goes. And you know, I don't know where that leaves his career. That's the one that leaves me the saddest. Because uh, you know, the way that he's banned from the PGA tour, he might never play in the European tour. Here's a guy who had the golfing world at his feet. Yeah. He's won a major. 
He, you know, other than Rory, he might be the most talented guy out there. And here's a guy who could go on and win half a dozen or 10 majors and really leave a mark in golf history. And, you know, he's foregone all that purely for the cash. So you ask yourself, did you not really have the desire to compete anyway? Was money always your god rather than uh, winning significant tournaments that actually mean something? Uh, you know, it poses a whole lot of questions, and I, I can't get my head around it. You know, I know, I mean, I know, I mean, I played out there for 35 years. I would say half the guys would say, no, I'm here to compete. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know for a fact that, Hazy, you never got on the first year of a tournament ever thinking about the prize money or knowing what the prize purse was, because I didn't. You got on the first year, even if you were playing badly, you got on the first year and thought, right, I can find a way. I really, really, really want. Every week you went out there, your goal was to win. You know, half the, 90% of the time you didn't, or 95% of the time in our game. But that was your goal every week on the first tee was, I want to win this tournament. And you knew, you knew in the back of your mind, if you win, yes, the money will follow. But you didn't get on the first tee thinking, oh, I want to go out this week and win so I can get rich. Never. Am I right, Hazy? Absolutely right. The question that I'd like to ask you, though, is uh, in regards to Live Tour, do you think the Live Tour players are going to be allowed to play in the majors. What is the feeling overseas regarding that? Yeah. Well, that, that is a great question. Uh, you know, I don't really know because uh, all the, you know, all all the majors are run by autonomous um, groups. Uh, yeah. RNA run the um, the Open. Uh, Masters run the the um, Augusta run the Masters. You've got the USPGA. Blah blah blah. Personally, I think if guys have have earned their exemption in the in the majors. I think they should be allowed to play. I mean, you've earned it. You can't get given something and then have it taken away. I think it would be petty, and I think it would be, be beneath uh, the leading golf organizations in the world. So, you know, there's talk that they should be banned from the majors. I don't think they should. You know, Cam Smith, uh, you know, he's exempt in the Open to 60, and he's earned that. You know, I don't think you can change the rules in retrospect. You see, there seems to be a discussion around, and I guess they could be squeezed via world ranking points, uh, Tony. Mm. So, I mean, something I haven't seen discussed at length, I know Greg Norman was touching on that issue this week, but um, the the world golf rankings, how much sway does the the likes of your PGA Tours and the DP World Tour have on whether the official world golf rankings can grant the live tournaments ranking points? Because that seems to be one of the discussion points around do those guys go off now and play Asian tour events to get world ranking points so they can still yeah. potentially get into the majors? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think Liv should ever be given world ranking points. You know, they've got about 15 qualifying criteria, uh, which have been in place for a long, long time. You know, you've got to be, have, have a tour that you can actually work your way onto via other tours. It's purely invitational. Um, you've got to have um, a minimum percentage of your tournaments have to be 72 holes. They're all 54 hole events. Uh, and there's a whole host of things by which they don't qualify. Um, so yeah, I don't think they should have. You know, the world rankings is another story altogether. They've made changes in in, in the world rankings recently, which uh, favor the PGA Tour of America hugely. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a sort of, a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're going to rank the, the, the value of the tournaments according to the value of the players, which theoretically is very good. You know, they've always had a, a bit of a, a bonus point system for the European Tour because we don't play for as much money and mm. we don't have as many world-class players there. So it is going to hurt. It's going to hurt the PGA Tour. It's going to hurt the Sunshine Tour. It's going to hurt the Australian Tour, no question. 
favours the PGA Tour. But in terms of actually giving live world rankings, you know, Norma knew exactly what the rules were beforehand. These rules didn't come into effect since Liv came on the scene. Those were the rules for the world rankings. You haven't abided by them. You've chosen your format. Cheerio, off you go. Mm. What do you say to Phil Mickelson's comments? I think it was in a press conference a week or two back where he said, oh, okay, well, yeah, if we hadn't gone and done this, guys on the PGA Tour wouldn't be earning all this extra cash that's coming up. You know, the PGA Tour found $100 million. You're welcome. If anybody thinks that Phil Mickelson has ever done anything for anyone other than himself, if he's trying to make out that he did this for the benefit of the game and the other players, it's absolute nonsense. Mickelson has never done anything that didn't suit Phil Mickelson. I'm sorry to say it, but that is the, the, the bottom line. Tony, uh, um, two two things I want to ask about the live tour. Mm-hmm. 54 holes, number one. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about you know having 54 hole tournaments? I mean, traditionally, all major big tournaments were always 72 holes. And then the other thing, which which really I, I don't enjoy at all, is are the shotgun starts. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, maybe we're too old-fashioned and we're too ingrained in our ways, but, you know, you've got a shotgun start. Some guy can win the tournament out on the on the, the eighth hole. You know, maybe he has a good last day. I'm not for that. You know, competitive sport is, is about the build-up and about the finish. And when you've got uh, shotgun starts, you know, you're going to, the winners are probably going to come from the last couple of groups granted. But, yeah, I, that's not for me. Um, you know, maybe maybe Mickelson, in a way, has done some good and that he's um, he's shaken things up. We've seen the, the, the PJ Tour have got uh, ideas with Rory and Tiger in mind. And I think probably we have got saturation with, with golf. There is too much golf. I mean, I, I watch barely any of the PJ Tour. I watch a lot of the European Tour, but there's so much golf. If you know, If you wanted to watch most that you'd never you'd never leave your television set you'd have to order pizza express every night and every day for lunch um and i think probably some change is a good thing but to me 54 holes yeah maybe it will become the thing in the future and maybe uh, the world ranking system will change because of this i don't know but at the moment as it stands i'm sorry you knew the rules they say it's going to take at least a year for them to get uh, accepted if they do change the rules uh you know, you knew the rules. You know, if I go down the highway at 120 miles an hour and they, they stop me and say, look, you're speeding, I can't say, well, you know, that's changed the rules for me. I want the limit to be 120. It's rubbish. Mm. And there's talk, I don't know whether you've had it confirmed or whether you've heard rumblings that uh, John Rahm might be off as well. I tell you what, I I I just can't believe that, to be honest. I mean, he's been a, a, a firm PGA Tour ambassador and he's spoken out recently to say you know absolutely he would not uh if he did it would be flat out line mm. i mean we're getting used to that brooks kepka said the same oh yeah absolutely i mean honestly there have been so many lies spoken here and uh, i think a lot of it's to do with the management companies the agents uh they're making serious money out of all of this and if you think they aren't exhorting their players to go and play live we're, we're all living in a dream world you know, these guys, the one, the one manager was walking around at um, the BMW International in Germany saying, oh, you know, I love Liv. I've, I've made 30 million out of it already and signing up players. You know, I wish somebody had taken him out the back and given him a good hiding. <laughs> um, and it's just, I don't know. Where do you go with this whole thing? You know, but the lies, yeah. I mean, John Rahm, that would, that would break my heart. But Taylor Gooch, apparently when he played in the first one, he said, no, he hadn't been approached. Um, 
to play in Liv. And it turns out now in this court case in America where Liv have had to uh, show contracts and things, he was signed up long before the first one. Another lie. You know, so, you know, where the heck has honesty and honour gone? I don't know. In a, in a game that, that prides itself on honour and integrity, Tony. I mean, let, let's not, you know, if you compare to other sports, golf has always had that, you know. Uh, honor, integrity, yeah. no cheating. Seemingly, obviously, it, it does take place from time to time. But um, it, sure. it's a sport that holds its head up there as, as supposedly a prime example of honor, integrity in sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, at the moment, it just looks like a dirty street fight in an alley. I mean, our, yeah. our game should be above all this, and it, it's not nice to see. You know, it really isn't nice to see. And I don't know. You know, you 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 know, we think okay, they're going to have to get down and talk, but um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the I don't know if Jay Monaghan's going to want to talk. You know, basically he's had somebody intrude and try and steal his players from him. Uh, Greg Norman, I don't think he's going to talk because Greg is, you know, Greg's had 30 years of um, of just seething about having been turned down about having a world tour with Dean Beam. And he's, he's, there's no question he's on a, on a vendetta. And I don't think there's any question that he's out just to cause chaos. You know, and I think he also wants to be relevant. You know, I mean, anybody that posts photos of himself in the nude on the beach uh, <laughs> on his social media sites, he wants to be noticed. After that comment from Tony, I've got to tell you this. As Dennis Hutchinson always says about Tony, that he always wanted to become a sex maniac, but he kept failing the practical. <laughs> <laughs> Tony. Never, never a true word spoken. <laughs> Tony. Tony, the other, you know, the other thing that uh, Livers has uh, harmed, obviously, mm. coming up now is the President's Cup. Yeah. And you were, you were the vice-captain there a few times. I mean, yeah. at, at the Open Championship, when we saw Trevor Immelman, he was devastated yeah. by what was, what was going to happen to his team. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the American team is always, you know, the Americans lose half a dozen players, but they've got another 50 lined up. Um, it's like the All Blacks uh, rugby team, you know, their B team is as good as anyone's. But it's definitely going to hurt. They've lost some, you know, Cam Smith. What a loss that is. I mean, the guys, you know, if he steps on the, up on the first tee, the rest of the, the opposition on the, on the, uh, the uh, U.S. tour side will be thinking, oh, yeah, hang on, we've got a game on our hands here now. Um, and I think it's really sad. I think it's really sad. Look, it's match play. Who knows? Maybe the President's Cup side, the international side can pull something off. But, yeah, if I was Trevor, I'd be sitting there rubbing my head thinking, oh, my God, what the heck is going on here? It's going to be a tough ask, really tough ask. And we've lost so many good players. It's, you know. And, of course, the other side of it is the Ryder Cup. And we've seen Henrik Stenson nail his colours to the mast, and you were quite vocal about that. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, to me, that's just another huge disappointment. I've always, I've always liked Henrik, uh, always got on well with him. And, you know, and then to, you know, you start saying, oh, but, you know, you, you're you looking forward to the to the Ryder Cup. You know, he was off doing um, media stuff a couple of weeks before that. And the next thing, poof, off he's gone to live. Uh, you know, must have, you don't just walk across to live and say, here, look, I'm here. Yeah. You know, there must have been something in the pipeline. And I found that, I found that, to be honest, personally, I found that very upsetting because I've always really enjoyed Henrik. Again, you know, we talk about other guys, you know, Everybody's got different reasons, and we know some of the reasons with Henrik. You know, he he lost all his cash in some fraudulent mm. deal that he got hooked up in, um, and then he and then he made some move with some. I think it was an Iranian art dealer, and everybody said, 
don't do it, don't do it. And he lost all his money again. So he's made some some poor financial decisions. But, uh, you know, a lot of people do. But the fact that he, he dumped the um, the Ryder Cup, uh, I just found really, really hard to get my head around. And he's gone very quiet. We haven't heard from him. He's not one of the guys that are going in for suing the PGA Tour and uh, and European Tour, thankfully. But, yeah, just really hard to understand because Henrik, honestly, Henrik, is a, he is a good guy. But, you know, this hasn't been his image any good. T- Tony, the, the, the vibe or the, the feeling among your, your fellow commentators and the sort of senior statesmen are, on the DP World Tour, because obviously you, you mix and work with, with, with some big names in, in European and, 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 and American golf. You guys obviously must spend some time discussing this, and you probably have. Uh, what's the general feeling? I think the general feeling is pretty much what I've said. You know, the guys that most of the guys that are on the commentary team are ex-players from around my era. You know, we all invested between 25 and 35 or 40 years in the European tour. This is where we earned our living. This was this was home. Uh, this is the tour that we supported and loved. Um, and none of us like seeing it uh, being put down. Uh, and the the aggro that's going on, you know, it, it's hurtful. It is hurtful. And you know. You know, you see things like Sergio last week. You think, oh no, man, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, he's you know he's been a a good servant of this tour. You know, he said, you know, he was faith he was uh, faithful to this tour and the PGA Tour for 24 years. Blah blah blah. Well, that's also a load of rubbish too, um, because what were his options? He could have gone and played the Sunshine Tour, the Asian Tour. It made him famous. It made him rich. But um, yeah, I think we're pretty much all on the same page. We all sort of think, you know, just. Don't do this to our tour. Don't do this. You know, the PGA Tour is another issue. I've got nothing to do with the PGA Tour. Played a bit over there, but never really was my tour. I really feel for the European Tour. It's uh, it's hurtful all around, I think. But let me ask you this then. Do you believe that there is a space in the game for a live kind of format? Uh, There probably is. And I tell you what, Dale came up with an idea when we were at the Open Championship this year, which I pondered long and hard. I think it's a brilliant idea. He said, you know what, didn't Live approach the PGA and say, look, we want to have the Live Series. Once a month, at the end of every month, we're going to have a Live event for $25 million or whatever the heck they play for. We'll have qualifying criteria, and that'll be the that'll be the Live Tour. I mean, that would have been a fantastic event instead of all this aggro that's going on. And they could have made qualifying criteria for all the tours around the world. Live and, and Saudi would have got the, the advertising. I know they're trying to... You know, they're trying to advertise the fact that they, they are changing. I, I just thought, you know, as soon as he said that, I thought, well, that, this can't be Dale's idea. It's far too <laughs> Well, I think Ernie mooted something similar. When he, you know, he was saying live should should be something that happens perhaps in the off-season, in the fall in America. Yeah. So, so, so something like that. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I think there probably is a place for it. You know, the, the wraparound PGA Tour, no question, that's hurt all the other tours uh, because the guys can't really go and play anywhere else. Um certainly hurt sunshine and aussie tours but i'm sure there's a, a place for it you know maybe not the, the 14 events they're talking about or maybe they fit them in on different weeks or they make a plan with the different tours to get exemptions from the tour to let players go and play certain players or certain number of players i'm sure there's a way for it to work in there some way tony let's just for a, for a moment just move away from that last week you said you were at, at uh, wentworth hmm. just down the road from where you live yeah. british pga championship you were a winner Probably the yeah. biggest win you've ever had. And yeah. I mean, I know you're very proud of that win. But yeah. you've also been known every now and again to get a little bit angry on the golf course. No, I and think, I think, that, I think that's on the my... very first green playing with Harold Henning. 
Tell us that story. Are you sure you're not going to get me confused with my twin brother, Anthony Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> nice try. I know that, that, was a, that was a beauty as well. I actually told it on air last week. Um, this is going back, oh, geez, this was probably 81 or 82. I'm drawn with Harold Henning and David Fiatti. And it was the first year that rubber spikes came out. There was a company called Stubert, who you'll remember, Dale. And, the, the, you know, the studs weren't these fancy spider-type spikes. Now. They were just hard rubber studs. And we'd had an extremely wet spring. The greens were unbelievably soft, and the rain just didn't stop coming down. So I've shot 79 the first day, and I know I need to shoot 71 to make the cut. The scoring was really high. I go out and I think, right, 71, it's got to be 71. And I get up on the first and I nail a drive and I nail a three wood and I hit it about 25 feet left of the flag, putting up the hill. What an opportunity I've got here. I can start with a, a birdie on one of the hardest holes in the course. And I give this putt a nice solid putt, shaves the edge of the hole, goes three feet past. I get up and the green is just mangled. We're late out on the second day and it looks like a plowed field. So I thought, okay, well, I, I, I don't know, do I lag this now? No, I'll try and lag it. So I try and lag it, goes bounce, 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 goes four feet by down the hill. Oh, my God. Okay, let's be positive. Uphill. Let's go straight and firm now. Bang. Another three feet by. Now I'm, now I'm starting I'm starting to almost have a hernia. <laughs> uh, now I'm looking. I've got exactly the same putt I had two putts ago. Anyway, I end up five putt. My only five putt in my career, and I make, I make a seven. And I walk off, and I'm just devastated. And I, I just I don't know what's going on here. We get on the second tee, and Harold's got my card, and he says, so, um, Tony, uh, that was a nine. I said, no, hang on a minute, Harold. One, two, three, four, five, six. I said, no, I think it was a seven. He said, yes, but on this tour, we have a rule that it's a two-shot penalty for practice putting during a round. <laughs> Fiatti nearly wet himself laughing. <laughs> All of us did eventually. But that was so typical, Harold. It was just it was one of the great comments I ever heard on the golf course. <laughs> Tony, you mentioned you mentioned David Fairfield. Obviously, he's hugely popular, and I mean, yeah. you know, you know him as well as I do. He's one of the funniest men that you'll mm. ever spend time with. I mean, he's yes. he's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Weren't you surprised that he's done what he's done? It doesn't get a chance to show off his talent. I agree with you. I don't think um, live commentary awesome. is the commentary for him. You know, yeah. in America, he's got more license. He can, you know, he can laugh and joke. Um, you know, over in live. You know, I don't think there's anybody there, too, that can play good cop, bad cop with him, you know, that can bring out the best in Fiat. Because, as you say, he's one of the funniest men. And I think he'll feel fairly restrained and restricted doing the live commentary. But, again, you know, look, you know, he's been offered a lot of money, set him up for life. Fiat is not a he's not a he's not poverty stricken. He's fairly well off. But he's obviously been made a massive um, offer that will just, you know, he never has to work again after five years. So understandable that he's gone, but I agree with you. I don't think he'll be able to show off his talents at all. Because, you know, the time that you've got when you're commentating over there, the mm. camera gets onto the player, mm. he hits the shot, it follows it follows the golf ball, and then yeah. very rarely does it ever go back to the player again. Yes. It just goes straight to the next player that they want to yes. show hit, hit a shot. So you've got no time to, to really tell a story or to do anything like that. No, that's why, you know, on a lot of the tournaments on the, the European tour now, the DP World Tour, we have this feature group thing uh, where, you know, they've got separate commentary teams and they follow just one group the whole day. And I absolutely love those because, um, 
you've got so much time to tell stories because the you know the the newer more modern way of doing commentary uh um peter ellis and ewan murray and these guys you know they were taught to let the pictures breathe and i'm sure mm. you were as well with Hachi. you know you left pauses you let the pictures breathe if you can't add to the pictures say nothing that's what we were told uh, and you had time between shots there was a nice flow you'd get guys walking down the fairway you could tell uh, great stories you know, I go out on Tuesday and Wednesday and mingle with the players and get as many stories as I can. But as you say, you don't get to use it because you go from drive to an iron to a putt, blah, blah, blah. And it, it is hard to tell stories. And that is Fiat's great strength, isn't it? He's got he's got a lifetime of unbelievable golf stories that he needs time to tell. You can't tell them in five seconds when they're off to the next shot. On that note, Tony, uh, Bring us up to speed on, on, on how you first got into commentary post-playing, how that story played out. And, and did you model yourself on anyone? And, and, and who was sort of your, your mentor or gave you the tips starting out? Um, no, not really. You know, um, Before I stopped playing, Sky used to have a Wednesday golf program. They said, look, would you like to come in and do one of the golf programs with us about bunker play, etc." So I went in there and they had this sort of fake bunker built in the, in the, in the studio. And I did that. And then the... The guy in charge of Sky Golf then phoned me back. He said, look, that was pretty good. Would you like to do a bit more? I said, I'd love to. So I did more of that. Then they asked me if I'd like to do um, a bit of on-course commentary, um, which I did. Got absolutely flushed on the head in Switzerland. Not any remaining sense I had left in me. Knocked it right out of me. And then they said, would you like to do commentary? Which I did. And started doing it with Ewan, who was was a very good mentor, Ewan Murray. You know, he... He gave me some great tips. The greatest tip he ever gave me, and I don't know if you'd have to edit this, but he said, you can talk shite as long as it's quality shite. <laughs> that was the greatest tip I ever had. <laughs> Just make sure it's quality. Quality. And, and you know, being around um, guys like you and obviously Hazy's done it for years and years, you know, you, you do learn, you do learn the timing of it all. You know, some guys just, just have it. Hazy, you know you know this as well. Some guys, you put a mic in front of them and it's like they're facing a wounded leopard with a toothpick. You know, they, can, they just never, they can't come to terms with it, having the voices in the ear. You've got the producer and the counts and things going on. And they, they just sit there and look at the screen and they just, they can't mm. get the, the, the hang of it. Um, and basically, I think you've just got to be yourself. You know, Hazy is himself. Uh, at one point, uh, one of the main heads of Sky said, um, you know, that if he wanted humor in his commentary, he would have employed comedians. And I said to the head guy, Sky Golf, I said, look, if this is the story, I'm not your man, because that's not me. I can't sit there for five hours and not have a bit of humor in the commentary. You know, I love life. I have a lot of fun in life. I have a lot of laughs with my friends. He said, you keep doing what you're doing. We're happy with it. So, you, you know, you've got to be yourself. I don't think, and people see through it. If you go on air and you try to be pretend to be something you're not people will see through you straight away so yeah. that's why hazy and i have so much fun we get into a little bit of trouble because sometimes we don't hear the producer because we're teasing each other too much and we go a bit off piste but uh, we have a we have an unbelievable amount of fun and the listener and the viewer can hear that but i want to go back to you getting pinged on the head actually it's not about mm. getting pinged on the head it's about getting pinged on your arm because that was your introduction to golf wasn't it you've been yes, hit a few times was, first game of golf ever we were up at a little golf course called um leopard rock up in the northeastern highlands in zimbabwe uh, it's still called leopard rock but they've now got a beautiful golf uh, golf course there peter makovich course and a hotel etc but in those days it was like an oldie world castle that some uh, strange old guy built himself nine holes and the hotel manager 
got everybody in the hotel to play. Said, right, everybody's going to play in this. And we'd never touched the golf club. And off we went and had a bit of fun. And then up the one hole towards the end of play, my, my dad had hit his ball off to the right, and I was carrying the bag. We were both playing, but I was carrying this bag of old hickories, mix of hickory and old clubs. And there was this huge boulder about 15 yards in front of it, and we weren't aware. And he got up and he hit the one good shot he hit all day and absolutely nailed this thing. And it took off like a rock. It hit this rock and came ripping straight back. And I just I stuck my elbow up in front of my head <laughs> and then pinned me right on the corner of the elbow. I mean, I was standing <laughs> down sore. and I was crying like a baby that was and you know you think maybe you're right there i would have thought you know this game is going to drive me insane maybe i should just go and play bowls or tennis or something but um we both fell in love with it instantly he, we went home he bought a couple of uh, sets of old clubs uh, at an auction really old clubs and basically that's how we got into the game and uh, just fell in love with it there and then strange how how life you know the different avenues life can lead you down I and mean, my whole life has been golf uh, because of that that little nine-hole game. I might never have played it otherwise. But Tony, uh, talk, you, you're talking about you being hit by a golf ball. Mm. You know, sometimes it's been the other way around. Brandon Stone tells a lovely story. Oh, Dale. Oh, why are you bringing... <laughs> this is why we have Dale on the podcast, Tony. It's just <laughs> to line you up and sink you. There's no escaping. <laughs> this, is, this is so cruel. It's the roast of Tony Johnson this afternoon. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> playing with, with Kevin, Brandon's dad in the Zimbabwe Open. And uh, as Hazy mentioned, I was known to get fairly warm under the collar on the very rare occasion, I should say. <laughs> and we're playing in the Zim Open and I've just three putted a par five, made six, sort of, uh, and just walked off absolutely furious. And Kevin, my playing partner is there and his wife is walking along and she's, she's eight or seven, I think she was seven months pregnant, you know, with her stomach out here. And I've walked off and I've winged my putter at my golf bag. Golf bags, um, Philip Latois has left the bag standing. Old bullseye putter, which used to have very soft, flexible shafts. And I winged the putter at the bag. It's hit the bag. The shaft sort of wrapped around the bag and it's taken off at right angles. And it's absolutely pinned Brandon's mom right on the head. Dez. On the head. Lights out. No. And she's seven months pregnant with Brandon. I mean, Lights out. Well, that would I mean, explain a lot lady, about Brandon. A lady, well, I've, I've often said to him, and he gives me cut, which he does a lot. I said, if I just aim three, <laughs> yeah, a little lower, lower. lower. You know, and I mean, it was because pandemonium, we were acting with wet towels. It was, it was absolutely the worst incident I ever had on a golf course. And thanks for bringing it up, Dale. But you know what? Uh, she forgave me. Uh, Kevin forgave me. Brandon's got no choice. He was still inside a tum tum. But yeah, it was the most horrifying. Honest to God, for a split second, I thought it went through my mind. I've killed two people here because she went down like a fallen oak tree. It was horrendous. So after that, I, I became a very well-behaved man on the golf course, and I never lost my temper again. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we joke, but I mean, you haven't played for six years. You didn't like the person yeah. you became on the golf course. Um, I never liked the person I was on the golf course. You know, to be honest, I went on the out every day fighting my temper, which I never, ever beat. And I came off the course every day embarrassed about my behavior. And every day I'd get on the first day and say, right, Johnston, today is the day. Today will be better. You'll stay calm. Um, and within three holes, I was acting like a child again. Um, and there's no excuse for it. You know, it was a lack of self-control. But it brought out the best and the worst in me, the game. It brought out the worst in my temper. Uh, but it brought out the best in me in terms of 
competitive spirit. Uh, it definitely brought out the best of me. But no, I, I used to get so angry and it was a red haze used to come down. It was terrible. And, you know, I almost didn't know what I was doing. I'd come off the course and Karen and my caddies would tell me things that I'd said on the golf course. And I genuinely, genuinely couldn't remember these awful things coming out of my mouth. It's just terrible. I mean, occasionally I used to say Dale Hayes is a nice guy. And I'll never forgive myself for that. Ever. You're delusional. Ever. No, but really, when I stopped playing, and I'd said to Karen, my wife, 20 years before I stopped playing, the day I feel I'm not competitive and the frustration outweighs the pleasure, I'm done. And I got to that point and I just thought, you know, uh, this this is too much torture. I didn't really feel like I was uh, capable of winning again. So I put the clubs away and basically they sat there for seven years. I love the game. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love the game. I love being involved in the game. I love the people in the game. But I just don't want to play the game. You know, it just, it just made me too angry for too long. Do you think it had anything to do with the fact that you had an Italian mother, that flair, a bit of the Italian probably. gene? Combustible personality. Yeah, I think so. I think there's no doubt. I think the Italian blood probably probably had a lot to do with it. Um, and I think, you know, it always sounds like a, an excuse. I was a, an extreme perfectionist, but it is an excuse because there's a lot of perfectionists out there that do manage to control the temper. So, you know, that, that, that's a poor excuse. I'm not even going to go down there. I just, I just used to get frustrated about never being able to attain perfection. Drove me nuts. I don't know. Just couldn't deal with it. Quite sad. Almost the worst sport for, for, for a perfectionist, uh, Tony. I mean, perfectionism and golf certainly don't go hand in hand. Well, not really. But then you see, you know, we're all OCD. There's no question. And Hazy will attest to this. You can't stand on the range for six or seven or eight hours a day, hitting balls, doing exactly the same thing, hoping to improve by an infinitesimal amount. I mean, you know, we're all slightly bonkers. And I've always said, if you weren't a head case when you volunteered to go on tour, you were within a year. There's no question. We're, we're all a bit punch drunk. But then, you know, you look at a guy like Mark McNulty. I mean, I think I'm a perfectionist. My God, he takes it to another level. And he was the calmest man you could ever come across. You couldn't tell if Mark had just made an eagle or a quadruple drop. So, you know, it's down to personality, down to character, and I suppose the ability to to just control yourself. And I, I just failed. It, was, it wasn't a lot of fun most of the time. There's a very special game when you think that hitting a golf ball that to a pin, that you vis- when you visualize the shot and you pull off the shot exactly as you visualized it is what gives you the the most satisfaction. However, yeah. the fewer times you hit it, the, the more enjoyment you've had. <laughs> yes, good point. Got to be a lunatic to play this game. No question. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but God, how, how we all love it. I mean, how we all love it. I mean, I did love golf. And I did love I did love competing and I I, I did love playing, but you know, the, 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 the angry side of me took its toll. But you mentioned that it, brought out, that it brought out your competitive nature and I think you went head-to-head with Ernie three times and he couldn't beat you. Uh, Dale mentioned the 1992 uh, PGA Championship. I think you saw you saw a felder there. So, I mean, like, you might not have been the biggest guy around, you might not have been the longest hitter, but you had a bit of grit and you sure had a lot of determination. Yeah, I suppose it was the aggressive instinct. You know, when I got on the tee with the big guys, I always sort of felt, right, you big bastard, I'm going to see you off. I'll have you. So, you know, I like playing and I like playing against the best. When I played with Seve, it, it used to bring out uh, the best in me, Feldo, Ernie. You should remind him of that 3 0, by the way, because <laughs> I, when, I, when I beat him at the SA Open and at Durban Country Club, he said, 
Johnston, I don't know what it is, but I just can't beat you. And I think that was maybe one of the greatest compliments I ever had. I'm sure life. you didn't say it exactly like that either. <laughs> no, it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> and t- Tony, the, I mean, the, we mentioned you, your competitive nature or your temper was a feature of your game, but um, talk us through the, the speciality in bunker play. How did that come about, and, and why did you end up being one of the game's finest exponents of the bunker play? Uh, all down to all down to Gary Player, really. You know, uh, when we were juniors, Gary would come up and uh, play in tournaments, and occasionally he'd do an exhibition. And I remember watching him doing an exhibition at uh, at the left-hand bunker on the 18th at Bulawayo Golf Club. And he was calling these shots. He was going to stop it on the first bounce, the second bounce, the third bounce. He was going to get it to run six feet, ten feet. And I thought, you know, this is some kind of this is some kind of magic this guy's doing. And right there and then I thought, you know what, I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to do it as well or, or better than that. You know, I didn't do it for the reason of scoring. I just wanted to be the best bunker player, which, you know, in retrospect helped me so much in my, my career because I could attack flags that guys wouldn't if there was if there were a lot of bunkers around. Uh, it was a huge advantage to me. Yeah, and basically I just I just practiced. I would go on, you know, school holidays and I'd spend all day, every day in bunkers. You know, when I was on tour, I used to wear out three ping sand downs a year. And I, I and I love bunker play. I love the variety of bunker play. I loved all the different things you could do out the sand, the different flights, the different spins, you know, which you couldn't really do chipping. You could do a bit of it. But bunker play, there was just something about it that really appealed to me. And yeah, I worked my backside off and uh, became very good at it. Yeah, and I just loved it. I just loved it. I, loved, I, I think I should have been Lawrence of Arabia. Maybe I was in a different life. <laughs> A ginger Lawrence Tony, of Arabia. Tony, you, you, you know, you might have reached or got close to the standard of Gary Player, but you never came close to Hobdo. Hobdo was always <laughs> a better bunker player than you. Hobdo, I tell you what, Hazy, I think you and I have been around each other too long because we're becoming telepathic. <laughs> as soon as I'm asked a question, I got, in my mind, I thought, here comes Hazy. <laughs> With the Hobdo you know, chip. <laughs> yeah, you know, we were playing a practice round when he says, hey, everybody tells me you're the best bunker player in the world. Come on, in the bunker here, one shot each, we'll see who the best in the world is. Okay, so in we go. And I hit a good bunker shot to about two feet. Hobday gets up and hits it to one foot. He said, that's it. I'm the best bunker player in the world. I said, no, come on. And he said, no, no, we said one shot only, and that's it. I am better than you, and I'm out of here. And he was gone. <laughs> and he, never again would he have me a bunker contest. We'd be on the range, I'd say, Hobbes, no, no, I'm better than you. That's all. That's it. I proved it. I don't need to prove anything. <laughs> the great Simon Hobday. Yeah. So, so- Told this off with a story about John Bland, hmm. but over the, over the years, the two of you have been. I mean, you were you were really best friends for many many years, and yeah. are still are great friends. Yeah. But tell us a couple of stories. Let's start with let's start with the bicycles in Holland. <laughs> you know, that wasn't me. I mean, uh, and I will say, Blandy and I have been the greatest of friends for well, forty years now. And he was a great friend and a great mentor to be on, on tour. We had dinner every night for 16 years before the, the mean swine went off to the champions tour to make his zillions, left me behind. I had room service for 16 years after the 20 <laughs> I lost my partner. But uh, yes, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the course. It was on an island and Sevi was playing and they had no courtesy cars. They had this, this little choo-choo train that used to go around the island. But you could uh, you could get it you could get a bicycle you could sign for a bicycle or a tricycle, um, and we would drive from our villas to the golf club every day. And Blandy was terrible because he would 
steal a bike from the golf course, leave it outside his apartment, and then just get the train to the golf course the next morning. So he ended up with about 20 bikes, and everybody was missing their bikes by the end of the week. But his party trick, we would ride our bikes up to the restaurant on the island every night, and we'd have dinner there. Uh, and the guys were, you know, the, the tour in those days was so much fun. You'd come out, and all every single bicycle, Mark Rowan, Gordon Brand Jr., the late Gordon Brand Jr., had hung 40 bicycles up in the trees. You came out, it looked like a Christmas tree with bicycles. We all had to climb up to get our bikes down. And Blandy's favorite party, going back to the apartment, we went down the steep hill, and they had these concrete bollards spaced with about six inches of space either side of the wheels because he liked trucks. He wasn't that good on a bicycle, Blandy. He was a bit wobbly. So he always had one of these tricycles. So every night he would get, we'd get to the top of this hill, and off Blandy would go, pedal as fast as he could, and aim himself, and he'd go between these two bollards. Boo! Off he'd go, and he'd, you'd hear this chilling, this cheering down the hill. Hey, hey, catch me if you can. So the one night we have dinner, and off we go. We have Blandy top of the hill. Right, I'm off. And off he went flat out down the hill but what he didn't know is that mark Rowe and gordon brand jr had moved the two inside bollards six inches closer to each other <laughs> well i tell you what you've never seen such a train smash in your life the back wheels jammed in between these bollards and blandy took over the handlebars looked like et like, like, like a guy that's rocking and he just kept rolling down this hill and everybody from the restaurant had followed us out because they knew this was going to happen i didn't know by the way and everybody was at the top of the hill just cheering blandy he had his torn shirt and his torn trousers but it was one of the funniest things you've ever seen there was no there was no cheer catch me if you can <laughs> he got you back uh, when you played the last round with sevi didn't he do something to your head cover uh no that wasn't me was it the other way around or did you do it to him no, I get blamed for this. This was Rick Hartman. Rick Hartman he just decided that uh, Blandy was a bit too chirpy. And uh, Blandy got on the first, he pulled off the head cover, and there was a massive condom over the top of his driver. <laughs> People all surrounding the tee, and here's Blandy, he's now got this driver out, and he's got this condom on, with a little bubble sticking out the top. <laughs> oh, so so I mean, he, he gets this thing off, and now he's got lubricant all over his hands. Oh, lovely. And he's got, he's got it on his glove and he's oh, just absolute chaos. I mean, but it was very hard to catch Blandy. I mean, it was very, very difficult to get even with him. I don't think there was a guy on tour that wasn't 100 to 1 down to him when he left. And we, we, all, we all still miss him. The number of guys that still come up to me all the time and say, how's Blandy doing? How's Blandy doing? He was definitely one of the most loved characters on the, on the, the European tour, no question. Of course, the other, the other story is you played, you played with Sebi. Yeah. And when you got over the hill, his ball was the ball was next to a tree. Mm. Yes, uh, got over. We were driving off over this uh, this little blind rise. Sharp dog leg left to right. Canama Golf Club in Holland. Little par four. Sharp dog leg left to right, and there's one lone tree on the corner of the the fairway. Um, so I walk up. I'm walking ahead, and I was always an ultra quick walker. And I get up there, and I look at this. There's one ball, and it's absolutely up against the tree, stone dead, stone dead. And I thought, oh, go on. So I have a look down, and Sevi's walking up about 20 yards back. I said, Sevi, uh, this this is unplayable. He's, uh, and there was a lone sprinkler about four feet away. I said, if I reach out like that and put my foot on the sprinkler, do I get a drop? He said, no, 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 no. He said, no, no. He says, no, uh, natural stance only, natural stance only. I said, oh. And then I turned around. I said, what about if I put my left leg, if I reach out like that? 
can I get a drop? He said, no, no, I tell you, I know the rule, eh? Natural stance only. I said, I'm glad you said that because I know the rules too, and that's your ball, and that's my one in the fairway over there. <laughs> well, I tell you what. It was just, and he looked at me and he went, huh, okay, okay. I, I don't know, but I played. You think you're funny, huh? You think you're funny. So he chips it out sideways, knocks it on the green to about 20 feet. I hit an indifferent wedge shot to about 30 feet. I three putt for five, and he holds the putt for four. I mean, you know, things, certain things shouldn't happen to a man in life. And I won't tell you his exact wording, but when he walked off the green, basically, he said, see what happened when you met with Sevi. Eh? <laughs> By the way, I've got to tell one story, Hazy, if we've got time. Yeah, 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 time. yeah, yeah. You know, it took me so many years to get even with Blandy because he caught me so many times. I mean, so many times over the years he caught me. And uh, we get back to SA and we're playing in the first ladies golf day at um, Kilani Golf Club when F.W. de Klerk was the president. And Blandy had been great friends with F.W. before he was even a junior minister. And his wife, Helen, was great friends with F.W.'s uh, wife. And this was in 1990, uh, 1992. And they just announced, uh, you know, the new South Africa that we're going to have uh, votes, democracy, one man, one vote. So I'm playing with uh, Pick Buerta. I said to him, yeah. So I said to him, sir, does the... The president had a good sense of humor because in the group behind us is Blandy playing with his mate, the president, F.W. He was a lefty, got, I think. I think Evie was a lefty. I can't actually remember. But no, he they was. Had the outriders, they had the outriders on the motorbikes, the security guys riding down the fairways, and here was Blandy with his mate, the president. <laughs> very important. So I said to Pat uh, I said, uh, you know, has the president got a sense of humor? He said, yeah, absolutely. Why? I said, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> so we're in the halfway house and we're sitting there and we're having a prayer and here comes Blandy. Comes in with his buddy, FW the president, lifelong friend. Hmm. And he's going around, he's introducing everybody to, to FW. And he comes to our table and he says, hey, Mr. President, uh, this is my good friend Tony Johnston, um, you know, from the European tour. And I stood up and shook uh, the president's hand and I said, um, Mr. President, it's really nice to meet you. But I just want you to know that we don't all share the views that John Bland spreads overseas, that you've really stuffed this country up and sold it down the river to Mandela. Well, Blandy, <laughs> the poor oak, he nearly had a heart. I mean, he looked like a goldfish out of water. He stood there with his mouth just going, bah, bah, bah. and FW picked on that straight away and swung around to Blandy. You call yourself a friend? How dare you? Poor old Blandy. I honestly, God, I thought I've gone too far here. The guys can have a heart. It was the funniest thing to see. So off we go. We get on, I tee off the 10th tee and Mouse, John's uh, late wife, comes running out. I mean, one of the loveliest ladies you'll ever meet. She comes charging down the 10th tee. Tony, 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 what have you done to my Johnny? I said, what do you mean, what have I done to your Johnny? I haven't done anything to your Johnny. She says, no, he's in the halfway house there. And he's, he's nearly in tears. I said, let me get this straight. John Bland is in the halfway house and he's nearly in tears. She said, yes. And I just started cheering. I just started going, yes, 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 yes. I finally got him. I finally got him. <laughs> and he came into the locker room afterwards. Only time I've ever seen John Bland really angry. He came up to me and he said, I will never, 
ever forgive you for what you did to me today. I will never forgive you. Never talk to me again. And of course, the next day we're the best of friends again. But it was one of the, it was just it was it was just a glorious moment. Landy's face. I'll never forget those. That's a great I'm story. Still, I'm still hundred. I'm still hundred behind. Uh, FW was great fun. Where we we got on famously. Tony, I just want to very quickly. I just want, I just feel we should touch on it because you know you were from a great batch of of Zim golfers, and yeah. I know you you listened to our chat with Nick Price, and you guys met at mm. a very young age. But that was a very very special time for for what was then Rhodesian golf, Zimbabwe golf. What what was it like growing up with the likes of Dennis Watson? Obviously, Simon Hobday is slightly older. Yeah. Nick Price, Mark yeah. McNulty. Mm. What what was it like being amongst those guys? It was fantastic. You know, they were all Harari. I was a Bulawayo boy. But during the school holidays, we basically used to play golf uh, for six weeks solid. We would uh, have a little, um, we'd have a couple of weeks in Bulawayo. All the Mishon land, the Harari guys would come down and we'd have a series of the Matabili land, junior, the Matabili land stroke play, the match play. Then we'd move up to the Midlands to Guelo, Gueru as it is now. We'd do the same there. We'd play a couple in uh, Mutari. And then we'd go to... Harare, Salisbury as it was then, and we'd, we'd, you know, we'd be there for a couple of weeks playing junior tournaments. And it was just fantastic. We would play mainly medal, uh, which stood us in such good stead when we, we, we turned pro. Um, and we, you know, we just played golf. We just played golf. We went round and round and round and played all day, every day. Unbelievable support from the golf unions and from our, our families and parents, etc. And, you know, golf was so cheap. I, I think I was given a dollar a day in school holidays when we weren't traveling go and play golf the Bulawa Golf Club, a dollar. And out of that, uh, you know, I would pay my, my five cent green fee to play all day long as a junior member. We'd go and play all day long. We'd have lunch. We'd, we'd have a bit of a gamble. We'd play for a pie and coke was the standard bet. Play golf all day, practice all day. We'd even have a caddy picking up our practice balls. Uh, things were so cheap. And then we'd go home and our folks would say, so where's the change? And you'd, you know, give them, 10 hey, give them some. Change. Yeah, but I mean, we were encouraged to play by everybody. And, um, you know, the golf clubs welcomed us as, as junior members. They really did. And, you know, to answer your question, playing with Mark was a little older. You know, he was the, the king on the block. Nick was a little younger, but twice twice the size of somebody like me. And we, we knew he was going to be fantastic. He was unbelievable at the age of 11. Uh, and I, I my first trip away from home ever, I stayed with, with Nick and Harari, uh, with him and his mom. You know, we got billeted out. Um, and you know, from the age of he was, 11, I think well, he was ten. I was eleven. You know, we've been lifelong friends ever since. So, you know, the whole the whole thing. You know, if I could go back and do the whole thing again, there's not one single thing that I would change. I might be nicer to hate, maybe because <laughs> I probably wouldn't get so much abuse. But uh, you know, it's it's been a wonderful life, and it all stemmed from those days. We were certainly very very lucky to have the the the, the youth and the life that we've had. Well, it's been wonderful having you on our podcast. Uh, Dale, final words from you, I think. That's apt. Well, uh, just, Tony, just to, just to say, you know, on behalf of all South Africans, how much they enjoy listening to you commentating on television. To have a, a South African or a Southern African voice commentating on the DP World Tour is, is just such a privilege. And your knowledge of birds and, and uh, animals, you know, you're only second to one person, me. 
before we go, let's just set the record straight here. Yeah. Last, yeah. yeah. last, last word. Last word. Last word with you, Mr. Johnson. Well, last actually, word with yeah. me. Uh, thank you, first of all, Hazy, for those kind words. Uh, I I love it, and I love coming out the SA, and I so look forward to being out there working with you again. Um, but don't tell anyone that. Uh, last year, which tournament was it, Hazy? At the South African Weird Open. South African Open. We'd all come back home because yeah. of um, the um, COVID. Omicron scare. Yeah. So I'm sitting at home watching the SA Open, and the next thing, on comes a bird. And Hazy comes up with the name of the bird, a violet-backed starling. I thought, geez. I didn't think Hazy knew the difference between a vulture and a VW, to be honest. <laughs> so I thought, that's, gee, that's very good, Hazy. And then he starts coming out with his facts and figures. I thought, what? What? Hazy loves the bush farm. He loves the bush and he loves the birds, but he's not particularly into the names and things. I thought, this is impressive. 20 minutes later, another bird comes on. Comes on about a hardy dars. I mean, and he's coming on about the senses in the hardy dars. I thought, this is, no, this is not right. This is definitely Something's up. Right. No, something's up. So uh, I, I messaged him and said, what's going on here? Who's helping you? He said, no, no, I've just I've been really studying up on the birds. I'm really into it now. And he came up with the most amazing facts and figures. One or two I didn't even know about. And I said to Karen, this is incredible. I thought I might have just lost my job. Anyway, turns out eventually that his producer was a keen birder and he was feeding me all the <laughs> And he, once again, Hayes suckered me in and I fell for a hook, line and sinker. Hazy, you are a beauty and I love you to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Especially the double-jointed foot. <laughs> yes. It's got a double jointed foot. I mean, for God's sake. I was into all my books. I couldn't stop looking for them. Uh, Teddy Johnson, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you for joining us on the Long of the Short of It. We've loved having you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks. That episode of the Long and Short of It brought to you by Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate. For access to an unparalleled living experience, visit blairathol.coza and make an appointment to take the first steps in realizing your dream home. Blair Athol offers the ultimate and secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. A world-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness center, spa and restaurant facilities. On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools in close proximity to the planned Lanseria Smart City. So why not visit BlairAthol.coza and take those first steps. Come home to Blair Athol, an unparalleled living experience. There it is, a win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.